What's up, everybody? It is good to be back in this place this week. So honored to be with you today. I am grateful to have the opportunity not only to be here, but I'm excited. We are starting a brand new series called Melodies from Heaven. And no, I'm not referring to the old Kirk Franklin hit song from back in 96. We are talking hymns and spiritual songs, songs that we grew up hearing. Sometimes we still sing them in our services and we may even reference them from time to time in our conversations and not even realize it. We're gonna be delving deeper into the spiritual bases and the truths behind those songs. So I invite you to continue to plug into this Series as it promises to be exciting. I want to get right into the scripture. I've got quite a bit today to go through in teaching and in preaching, so I want you to join me in John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, and then we're going to jump down to verse 44. And verse 37 reads, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then jumping down to verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father that sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this day. This is the day that the Lord has made and we promise to rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you, God, that you have brought us all together. We might not be in the same rooms, but we thank you that we are all under your covering and under your watchful eye. So we invite you into this place today and into our midst to do what only you can do, to heal and to deliver and to save. And we know that we are not the only ones, God, that you are watching, but Father, all throughout this city, wherever your gospel is being preached, we thank you that your word is going forth with power. And with every church, God, across this nation and across this world, we thank you that wherever your gospel is preached, that lives will be transformed for your glory and for their good. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So. I am a lover of music. I always have been and I always will be. And when I, when I say I'm a lover of music, even though I am a self-identified old school hip hop head, I love all kinds of music. It can be from any genre, country, pop, rock, grunge rock, alternative, classical, R&B, gospel, hip hop. It doesn't matter what kind of music it is. I just, I just love music. But beyond me being a lover of music and the, the, the instrumentality of music, the melodies, the chords, and, and everything like that, the rhythms, I am really, at heart, a fan of the lyricist. And when I say the lyricist, I mean that often overlooked, underappreciated, underrated songwriter. I don't think that songwriters get half the kind of credit that they should. And everybody that is in the chat right now that's a songwriter, I need you to just jump in and put, I know she talking right, I know she talking right. If you love a songwriter, if you know a songwriter, you should be cheering them on right now because it is a difficult job and it's so underrated. But the reason that I, I love the lyricist and the power of songwriting is because it's really easy to get caught up in the melody of a song or in the beat of a song and completely miss what actually makes the song meaningful, which are its lyrics. 
If you take a second to think about a song that you really love, and then imagine the words of that song being changed, wouldn't it change the way that it impacts you? Do you think that the song would even mean the same thing? Would it have the same kind of effect? Wouldn't it hit differently? Of course it would, because songs are meant to have words that are meaningful, and a gifted lyricist knows just how to use those words and the power of words and arrange them in such a way that it paints pictures and it stirs in emotions and in even the best case can cause you to resolve in complete tears. That's what a gifted lyricist can do. It's no different with a spiritual song or a hymn. In fact, I remember being as young as about seven or eight years old, and there used to be this little Presbyterian church across the street from where I lived, and my brother and I would walk over there on, on Sunday mornings from time to time, and we'd sit in, in the pews and we'd listen to some of these hymns being sung. And it didn't really matter what was being sung, there was always some type of emotion that was stirred, whether it was the quiet hush that would fall across the room, or if you look over and you'd see a parishioner and their eyes were just welled up with water or tears streaming down their face. Every single time, these hymns would just stir these emotions. And, and as I got older and had an opportunity to visit different churches and different denominations, I noticed the same experience. No matter where I went, when hymns were sung, people would just have this reaction to it. Doesn't matter what the, what the place was, as long as a hymn was being sung, people were having these emotions and emotional reactions to it. And it's not until I got a little bit older and became a Christian that I realized that all of that time, it wasn't that we were reacting just emotionally to the sound of a, a song. It wasn't the pretty words that we were reacting to. It was the spiritual truths, the biblical basis of those words that were streaming through that song that were causing us to have an emotional react reaction to a spiritual truth. And there's one song in particular that I noticed that wherever I went, whenever it was sang, it would have the same response. People would either raise their hands and say hallelujah, or they'd sit there and just weep quietly. And sometimes they'd even walk to an altar and just throw themselves down and just begin bawling. And the name of that hymn is Just As I Am Without One Plea. Even as a child, I realized that there was something different about that song. And so today, I wanna, I wanna do a little examination of the biblical truths surrounding that song. And I wanna start by going into the backstory of the one who wrote it. So history has it that one Miss Charlotte Elliott was born in 1789, and she was actually the granddaughter of a well-known reverend by the name of Reverend H. Venn. She was born into a family of clergymen, and though she, as she was growing, was not particularly religious herself, the truth is that as being a part of a family that was devout in their Christianity, she was very familiar with the pious ideas and practices of, of, of what it takes to be a part of a Christian family. And though she herself wasn't a preacher, she did have a remarkable gift of writing. She was well known in her social circles for being a humorous poet. And at the young age of 32, Charlotte Elliott was struck by an illness and that illness left her an invalid. And so needless to say that that illness caused her to take a very negative reaction and have a very 
ultimately negative perspective of her own spirituality. So when a family friend by the name of Dr. Caesar Milan came to visit their home and dared to inquire of Charlotte whether or not she truly knew if she really was a Christian, she actually took offense to that question and the offense was reflected in the way that she responded to him. She later came back and apologized for the, the crudeness of her response. And it is said in history that she said to him, not only was she not sure about her own Christianity, but that she didn't even know how to come to Jesus. And so it was at this point that Dr. Caesar Milan reportedly said to her, you must come just as you are, a sinner to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And shortly thereafter, she was converted for Christ. Fast forward 14 years and it's 1836, Charlotte's brother, who's also a clergyman, is getting ready to build a school for the children of fellow clergymen. And all of his family and their friends are all involved in this fundraiser. And unfortunately, due to her illness and her incapacity, Charlotte was not allowed to participate because she had to remain home. And the story goes that while she was home, she became very despondent and she became very upset again about the idea that she felt useless, like there's no possible way God could use her or accept her with her, in, with, um, her illness. And so she did what was best for form for her. She sat down and she began to write. And she was writing for the purposes of trying to encourage herself and remind herself of the promises of God. And she ended up writing a poem. And at the top of that poem, she listed John 6, 37 and the B clause that no one that comes to me will I in any wise cast out. That poem went on to be publicized later as a hymn called Just As I Am Without One Plea. That same Charlotte Elliott would go on to write more than 150 hymns and a bunch of other poems. And she was recognized for this particular hymn until the day that she died in 1871. And so today's message is gonna be based on that particular truth found in the same scripture that Charlotte herself identified as a theme for her hymn. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and that anyone, no matter who they are, if they come to Jesus, he will in no wise cast them out. In other words, no matter who you are, he receives you unconditionally and he will not reject you. There's a well-known story uh, over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, that I feel really illustrates the truth of this particular scriptural truth very well. And depending on the version of the Bible you have, it's either labeled something like uh, a sinner woman forgiven by Jesus or Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Either way, we want to jump into, into Luke chapter 7, but I want to set you up for what's about to take place. So in the book of Luke, um, just before this happens, Jesus has been baptized by his cousin John. He's now starting his ministry. He's actually in the full swing of ministry. So he's moving through crowds and through towns. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's healing people. He's delivering people who are possessed of demons. And he's speaking these great scriptural truths and revelations that are both amazing and horrifying the religious elite of that time. And the religious elite are known as a sect called the Pharisees. In fact, at one point, he's dropping so many truth bombs on the people that they actually lay hold of him physically in an attempt to fling him off of a cliff. 
But he gets away from all of that and he goes right back out and he starts preaching the kingdom of God again. And he's constantly just going in the faces of the cultural and religious norms. But every single time Jesus does something countercultural beyond normal for them, here come this group of, of Pharisees. They just pop up and they complain and they question every little thing that Jesus and his disciples do. There's an account uh, in, 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 in Luke where he goes out and he's, he's sitting and his disciples are sitting and eating with sinners, what the religious sect would consider the, the dross of society. And here come the Pharisees questioning, why, why are you eating with them though? They're sinners. And there's another time there, him and his disciples are walking through a field and they're hungry, so a man pops off a piece of corn and starts eating and the disciples are, are eating it up. And here comes the, the Pharisees, why are you guys eating the corn though? It's, it's Sabbath. And next time, he's moving through the city and someone needs healing and it just happens to be the Sabbath. And how dare he decide to heal a man on the Sabbath? And here come the Pharisees again, like whack-a-mole. Why are you healing him, though? It's Sabbath. Everywhere he goes and whatever he does, here are the Pharisees and they have problems with what he's doing. So I find it particularly interesting that in Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee by the name of Simon decides to invite him over for a meal. And upon first looking at the text, there's nothing really uncommon about inviting him for a meal. Jesus has had, he has dined with religious sinners, uh, with religious leaders rather, prior to this. So there's nothing really, there's nothing, in, it's innocuous enough to have the invitation to dine. But something is going to happen at this particular meal that nobody could have anticipated. When an unannounced woman shows up while Jesus is reclined at meal, and Luke 7 verse 37 reads like this. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, he being Jesus, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now here it is that this Pharisee, most likely a well-respected member of his society, somebody who definitely had the means enough to, to have such a meal and invite the teacher over, is deciding to entertain the much sought after and controversial Jesus in his home, when suddenly the dinner is interrupted by this woman. And the Bible makes it clear that this was not only a woman, but this was a notorious woman, a sinner, Ooh, a loose woman, probably, a prostitute and she approaches the Lord and she begins to to weep uncontrollably so much so that her tears begin to wash his feet and we cannot ignore the description of this woman this unknown interloper who turns up at a meal that clearly she was not invited to but what I instead am immediately drawn to are the words when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. That, the order of those words, the fact that she heard where Jesus was and her response was to come. That brings me to my first point. Maximize any opportunity that you are given to come to Jesus. The Bible doesn't give us preamble on this woman. It doesn't tell us what the great catalyst would have been behind her feeling so impressed to seek out this opportunity to have an audience with the Lord. It only tells us that once she heard about Jesus being present, she acted. She didn't allow the opportunity to escape her, but instead came to him exactly how she was with exactly what she had. 
And I don't know about you, but I know for myself, it took a while before I decided wholeheartedly to come to Jesus. And I think we all know at least one person, or maybe we, you are that person, who, who's perfectly satisfied with coming to the special church services, the, the Easter services and the Christmas services and the New Year services. You know the ones, the ones who come in and they're like, man, your pastor preached this a powerful word, man. I'm like, I'm touched, man, I'm touched. He touched my heart, star. But they don't actually make a decision for Christ. Or, or the ones that are just like, you know, just, you know, that there's something that happened in the service. You know, I was listening to the song and then, you know, just something, I don't even know what to ex- how to explain it. Something just came over me and I just got so emotional. And then you ask them, so, so what are you going to do with that? Do you, do you think you want to make a decision for Christ? And they're like, I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know that I'm like really ready or like God's really ready for me. That kind of thing. And I love it because, because the way that Jesus goes about things is always to remind us of who he is and not who we are. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Maximize your opportunity to come to Christ. And the truth of the matter is sometimes the only reason that we don't come to Christ is because that we, we feel like we need to fix ourselves before we come to the Lord. Like somehow there's something that we can do to make ourselves more approachable before we approach him. And the truth is, is that there's nothing that we can ever say or do that will make us more acceptable to Jesus. We don't don't approach Jesus on the basis of who we are or what we've done. We approach Jesus on the basis of who he is and what he has already done for us. And that is the good news. That is the euangelion, that is the gospel of the Bible, that Jesus Christ has already done the work to reconcile us to God, and we need only accept his sacrifice as being enough. I wanna take this opportunity to, to caution us. If you are a part of, of a group or an institution that professes Christianity, and yet their soteriological stance their, 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 their doctrine of salvation is not Christocentric. It is not solus Christos. It's not based on Christ and Christ alone. Then whatever they are preaching is not the good news of the gospel. It's news, but it's not good. The truth of the matter is that what Jesus has done is enough. Romans 5 and 8 tells us, but God, in as much as he loved us, this is what he did. He sent Jesus Christ that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If he was willing to die, die while we were still sinners, what is it that we could possibly do at this point that could make us more acceptable to him? This is why the songwriter says, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Without one plea, without an argument, without a leg to stand on, the only reason that we come is because the shed blood of Jesus Christ calls us to him, and because he is the one that wants us to come to him, that is enough for us to present ourselves before him. And this woman, this woman who made this decision to come this day, doubtless she had heard Jesus preach before. As I mentioned, he was becoming very popular and controversial as he moved through the towns and preached and delivered and healed. Maybe 
She had heard him preaching and, and revealing through, through the gospel and through the, the truth of God's word, the fact that indeed this loving God was a God of grace who desired to save his people and not condemn him. Whatever the case, it's obvious that something significant had happened before this that allowed her to realize that not only did this man have the healing that her soul needed, but that he was the healer of her soul. No wonder she moved so swiftly to have an up close and personal encounter with him. And so we should be just as swift to have advantage of every opportunity to come to Jesus while he is near. So overcome is this woman that the Bible describes her tears in verse 38 as, as coming down so hard that it begins to wash his feet. The word that is used is breho, and that word, it means rain. She wept like rain on his feet. And then having wet his feet, she began to dry it with her hair and anointed it with the oil that she had brought. This is quite the spectacle. I mean, under normal circumstances, this kind of behavior would be questionable, but, but, but it's almost unacceptable the extent to which she went. However, there are a few things about this situation that make it that much more remarkable. The Bible says in verse 39 that the Pharisee, when he saw this, he said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So many times when we, when we look at scripture, especially scriptures like these, we have a tendency to view it through our own cultural bias, meaning that we tend to look at scripture and we cast the perspective that we have based on our own culture, our own societal norms and means. But if we really want to understand the truly astounding realities of this account, we need to see it in its proper context, which means that we need to look at it both based on its geographical and cultural norms of the time. The Jewish culture, for example, is particularly known for being a patriarchal society. Patriarchy literally means under the rule of a father. So women were then seen as being under the authority of males. They were not afforded the same permissions, liberties, or access as men. So the fact that this uninvited woman approaches the home of a Pharisee, a male religious leader, who is entertaining a local religious teacher, and he's entertaining them in what would have been a mainly male-based audience, and dares to draw close enough to weep on him, was counter-cultural to those times. Strike one. Not only is she a woman, but the Bible specifies she was a sinner. And the Greek word there is harmatolos. And it means that she wasn't merely a sinner, but she was devoted to her sin. Most likely, the vice of her choice was prostitution. And that is furthered by the detail that she brought with her a flask of perfumed oil, something that, that, that harlots and, and prostitutes were known to use, you know, to sweet up themselves and make themselves more appealing to their patrons and their clients. And so, by virtue of her character alone, this woman, this sinner woman, would have been viewed as ceremonially unclean by the Levitical law. And touching her or being touched by her would make Jesus unclean as well. 
And yet not only is she touching Jesus, she's drying his feet with her hair and she's kissing his feet and she's anointing them with oil. Strike two. By virtue of his status amongst the people, Simon, the Pharisee, is not only aware of the kind of woman that she is, but as one who is well-versed in the Levitical law, legalistic in his approach to the observance, and punctilious in his application of said law, the very idea that she came there is problematic. But the fact that she isn't coming into contact with Jesus is more than he can take. In fact, it actually causes him to doubt and question who Jesus really is because of the type of person that he's allowing to touch him. That right there needs a break. He's questioning who Jesus is based on who the Lord is allowing to touch him. He's so critical of this woman that the idea of Jesus allowing her to touch him instead of admonishing her and rejecting her the way Simon thinks Jesus should is, is causing him to wonder whether or not this man is truly a prophet. Strike three, she should be out at this point. But I am so glad, I am so glad that we serve a touchable Jesus. Put that in the chat. We serve a touchable Jesus. I'm glad that not only does Jesus allow people to physically touch him, but he is touched by us. He can sympathize and empathize with the feelings of our infirmities. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says that, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points, like as we are yet without sin. I'm glad that he knows how we are. And so Simon, the Pharisee, he is not only a prophet, but he is our high priest. Glory to God. That brings me to point number two. Coming to Jesus is not always free of obstacles, but none of them can stop you from touching him. Let me be clear. Nobody can get in the way of you getting to Jesus. You are the only one that has the power to make the decision as to whether or not you come, and once you do, nothing and nobody can stand in your way. This woman is a prime example. This is a woman who was constricted by her culture, who was crippled by her character, and who was castigated by her critics, and yet she still took the opportunity to come to Jesus. We can say the same thing of ourselves these days. We are living in a culture, whether it be ethnic or it be societal, where the norms tell us that it's not necessary for us to serve God, that Jesus Christ is not even a real person. He's some historical figure that maybe walked the earth at a certain time, but has no real power. And then, of course, there's, there's our own problems, our own character, the things that maybe we've done or we're still doing that pose a threat to us coming to Jesus. And then there are the critics, and it can be ourselves. We can have the worst inner critic that there can ever be, or external critics that tell us that there's no use in trying to come to Jesus because he wouldn't accept anybody like us anyways. But that is not the truth. We can know for a certainty that Jesus Christ wants us to come to him and that nothing, nothing and nobody can stop us from touching him. When I, when I look at this situation that's occurring in chapter 7 of Luke, it, it's just bonkers. You have this woman who, who's not even invited to the party. She's most likely a prostitute showing up at the house of a religious leader. 
Now I wonder, does anybody, does anybody out there remember when Lil Mama jumped on stage with Jay-Z and Alicia Keys uninvited? And, and everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. This woman, she just got so hyped, she just jumped up on stage, nobody called her up or anything like that. Remember that? That's kind of what's happening here. And I, I imagine that Simon, Simon is leaning back and he's watching what's happening and he's like, this trick literally just walked up in here no, she's bawling down the place. She's isling up man's foot like this is a regular pre-Sabbath thing. And Jesus is laid back easy as if this is something that is regular and happens to him all the time. And, and verse 39 says this, uh, rather verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. I love the way Jesus responds to this. The Bible says that in, 30, in, in verse 39, Simon was watching what was happening and questioning whether or not this was even a prophet the way that people thought this was a prophet. And now it says in verse 40 that Jesus answered him. In his thoughts, Simon was thinking and Jesus answered him out loud. I think the question of whether or not this is a man of God, we can, we can put that to rest. But like many of the other Pharisees, here is Simon questioning the validity of Jesus and quickly comes to the conclusion he could not be who he says he is because he's allowing this sinner woman to touch him. And instead of directly addressing or even reprimanding Simon, what he does is he uses a parable. Now, a parable would have been a regular form of teaching during that time. Many rabbis use it. In fact, many traditions use it in order to confer or to transfer wisdom and to teach. And so when he lays out the parable, he gets it very quickly. He understands the lesson very quickly. But what Jesus was doing by telling him a parable was he was leveling the playing field between Simon the Pharisee and this woman. The ground before the cross of Jesus Christ is level. There is none greater than another when it comes to being at the feet of Jesus. What he does is he tells them that there is a lender who has two debtors and both debtors could not pay. So Simon couldn't sit there and say to himself that somehow he's better than this woman because he lives his life differently than this woman lives her life. No, instead the ground is completely leveled when Jesus points out that the lender had to cancel the debt of both. And so check this out. Not only does Jesus check Simon by leveling the playing field, but then he goes on to add insult to injury when he says to him in verses 44 to 47, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But who, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, I don't want to imply that someone's forgiveness is based on the amount that they love Jesus. 
In fact, that is not the case. Instead, the love that they demonstrate and the greatness of that love is a direct result of them acknowledging just how much they have been forgiven. In this case, both Simon and the woman were in a position of indebtedness to God. Neither one of them was perfect or sinless, although one may have sinned differently than the other. For the woman, it was sexual immorality. For Simon, it was self-righteousness. And yet both of them had a debt that they could not pay. The main difference is that this woman chose to acknowledge the debt that Jesus incurred on her behalf. And because she decided to acknowledge that she poured out this great display of love before him. Both had their debts canceled. Both had an equal opportunity to express their love and their gratitude. And only the woman chose to take that opportunity. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior. It does not matter what walk of life you are coming from. He is able to save to the utmost. I want to take a second to just address just for a moment the saints because it's very easy to listen to this story and feel like it's really designated for one particular group, specifically believer, unbelievers. But I want to speak to the believer this morning. I want to speak to the super saved, seriously sanctified, amazing, charged, serious saints. It is very easy for us to forget that the same grace that saved us is the same grace that it takes to keep us. And we can get to the point where we become almost Pharisaic in our application of religious rituals. And we look at others who have not yet come to Christ or who are seeking Christ. We look at them and we designate them as other. But that is not the case. We need to be so careful to recognize that the Lord saved us. In the same way that he saved us, he is doing a work in them. There is coming a time, I feel this so strongly, there is coming a harvest to the body of Christ like we've never seen before. And they are not going to look like us and they are not going to sound like us. They won't act the way that we think they should act. They won't do things in the way that we think we should do them. But I want you to lean in, just lean in for a little second. Come a little bit closer. We are not the sheep gate. It is not our responsibility to determine who can and cannot come to Christ. He will do that for himself. John 6, says, no one can come to the Father unless the one that sent me draws him. If someone is coming to the Lord, it's because God has called for them. And woe be it unto us to ever present an obstacle for anybody to come into the presence of the Lord. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. I don't know about you, but there's something in this account that has always been a problem for me. I've always had an issue with it. And, and what it is, is that I noticed that from the moment this woman comes in to the dinner, to the way that she laments, to the point where Jesus is teaching a parable, not once does he actually address this woman. He doesn't say a word to her at this point. And, and I question it. Why? Why in a moment of vulnerability, when she's pouring herself out like this before such an unwelcoming and judgmental set of people, why would he not open his mouth and say something to her? 
He addresses Simon. He contrasts and compares what Simon did not do, which was the customary honoring of receiving a guest, greeting them with a kiss, washing their hands, providing water to wash their feet, anointing their head with oil. And he contrasts it against this great display of honor and humility that this woman pours out on him. And yet he still does not say a single solitary word to the woman. But what looks like Jesus' oversight of this woman is actually the occasion he uses to silence her accusers. Get ready to put this in the chat. Perceived silence from Jesus may just be the sound of him silencing your accusers. Oh, go ahead and dance on that one. What you perceive as Jesus being silent towards your tears may just be the time he is taking to shut your enemies down. The Bible tells us in verse 48, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The first time Jesus decides to speak directly to her, it is to remind her of the very thing that drove her into his presence in the first place that her sins are forgiven, that everything that was needed to be done had already been accomplished by him, and he did it in the hearing of all who were present. And he acknowledges it that it is her faith, the faith that she placed in Jesus, that is what has saved her and finalizes it by telling her to go in peace, which brings me to my final point. When you choose to come to Jesus, he causes you to go in peace. I believe that if this woman had been alive in our times, the song of her heart would have sounded like this. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. She came to Jesus just as she was. She was received because Jesus did not reject her acts of repentance. He welcomed her and the display of her love and humility, and he spoke highly of it. He pardoned her when he forgave her. He cleansed her by her faith in him, and he received her when, and relieved her when he told her to go in peace. Matthew 11, 28, 29 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Coming to Jesus will always result in rest for your soul. And that doesn't mean that everything is perfect. It just means that you can rest in him even though they aren't. The very last line of every verse in that hymn ends with the same thing, I come. But here's the thing, in order to come, you must first leave. What is it that you need to leave in order to come to him? For some of us, it, it might be a person or a set of people that you need to leave, to come to him. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father 
giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So my question to you is, will you come? Charlotte Elliott came. She made the decision to come. And as a result, she ended up writing not only a popular hymn, but a hymn that one of the most influential, possibly the greatest evangelist that ever lived, Billy Graham would use in every single one of his crusades whenever he was preaching. And he went on to say that the reason he chose to use that particular hymn is because it presented the greatest possible biblical basis for the call of Christ. That's what happened when Charlotte came. Not only that, but do you remember I mentioned that there was a fundraiser that her brother was putting on for a school he was building that she could not, that she could not assist with? It turns out that this hymn became so popular and its circulation so wide that the hymn itself ended up raising more money than any of the other contributions for the fundraiser. That is what happened when Charlotte Elliott chose to come. This is a hymn that's literally been heard by millions of people upon their first encounter with Christ. The truth is, you have no idea what you are setting in motion for future generations when you make the decision to come today. So, will you recognize and take advantage of the opportunity that is placed before you to come to Christ? Will you come knowing that Jesus is calling you and though coming to him may not be free of obstacles, nothing can stop you from touching him? And will you come realizing that if you choose to come to him, you get to go in peace? Will you come? I pray that your answer is, O Lamb of God, I come. God bless you.